Galatians 5. Last hour I shared some images from our uh, weekend, the, the first annual Trail Life of New England uh, Klondike Derby, which um, I had a fun thing with, with the first hour crowd, and that was a lot of you. Um, how many of you have been on a Klondike Derby before? You made a sled with your team, and you went and did all the stations and raced the sleds and everything in the snow? Lou told me that uh, if you don't have snow, you can put wheels on the sleds and then pretend. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty bumpy on the ice and snow, too. I've never been in a situation where I thought, oh, this is what snowshoes are for. Up in Lovell, Maine, to get to the tent, you know, there's the, 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 where we were, there were two feet of snow on the ground or so. So you, every step, you're crushing through. I was like, oh, you know what? Here's the thing. If I had a um, bigger surface area with the same amount of weight, then um, I could probably not sink down in the snow. I was like, oh, snowshoes. Didn't have any. So we just sucked it up. But anyway, uh, I was with the Trail Life kids and a couple of the boys, and I went and did the first annual Klondike Derby. And that was a really cool thing. And I'm just talking about it because I live in Connecticut. And that never exists. I could never do anything like that uh, when I was in Texas. That, didn't, that was like a, a, a mythical, fictitious thing. Like we saw movies with kids building uh, snow forts. That must be really cool. You know, just how, how would that, even snowmen. I, I think I made one or two snowmen when I was a kid. They did, you know, the Texas snowman is it's pretty, it's tan. <laughs> you don't have big, pretty white snowmen. You got the tan snowman for half a day. Kind of like this year, this La Nina or whatever winter we're having. Well, we're in uh, Galatians 5 today, and the challenge from God's Word involves the way we walk because of what we talked about with the kids, because of our redemption. Galatians 5 is uh, one of the great chapters of application of the Scriptures here in the New Testament, and it is a blessing uh, to think it through. And as we talk about the riches of divine grace, and I've selected the text of Galatians 5, the topic is um, what blessings we have because of our salvation. What blessings, and the topic is the spiritual life you've been given. Let me see if I can depict that for you up there. There we go. So you have a spiritual life. You have a power from God. You have the walk by the Spirit. You have the Christian spiritual life, which is the new thing in part that's been given to us because Jesus has come and he's died on the cross for our sins and risen from the dead and given us the Holy Spirit. And he told the disciples to pray and pray and pray for the promise of the Father that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And in fact, in uh, 33 AD on the day of Pentecost, they did. The Holy Spirit came and we began this work, this mission that God's given us of walking by the Spirit in the works that he's given us to do. In this pulpit, uh, for as long as I know, be back to Jim Henderson days and probably before, there's been a heavy emphasis, and I just mentioned probably 40 or 50 years, there's been a heavy emphasis on the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. The Christian spiritual life, that's the new thing that uh, describes everything we read from um, that Paul is describing. And it's the radical stuff of the New Testament that makes us think Paul is... He's just, you know, he's so heavenly minded that he couldn't be any earthly good. When we read, when people read the New Testament and hear what Paul's saying, and he talks about let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, you're like, well, I mean, yeah, Paul's he, he's using big, you know, hyperbolic language. He's, or, or when he says um, in Galatians five sixteen, but I say walk by the Spirit, you will not 
be able in any way to fulfill the lust of the flesh. We think that this is, uh, this is way too big for us, like Jesus commanding us to love one another as he has loved us. What kind of egomaniac do I have to be to think I love as well as Jesus does? Right? They, nobody loves that well. Jesus did. I'm not Jesus. But he commands me to love as he loved. See, that radical stuff of the New Testament that talks about the Christian life and the not quenching the spirit, not grieving the spirit, and, and walking worthy of our calling and all the things that it says, they all are expecting that you have power from God that is beyond your capability so that it is God's grace flowing and working through you. And so what is radical to the world around us, and you can't look left and right and see how everyone else is doing, you can't even do that with Christianity and churches. Well, how are churches doing it? You have to go to the text of Scripture, hear from your Father in heaven through the Holy Spirit, through the apostles and prophets that they've written the Scriptures, and you have to learn from directly God's revelation what He wants you to know and He expects of you. And it's called, in summary, the Christian spiritual life, and it's part of your riches that you have. You have this irrevocable blessing of the indwelling Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity living in you. And the Scriptures say forever. He's come to abide in your heart forever. You have this magnificent gift in earthen vessels here in this dying body. We are the temple. My dying frame is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it isn't so that I feel good. And that's one thing that's been done is the Holy Spirit in me makes me feel good and have these ecstatic feelings. That's not the New Testament's testimony on what the Holy Spirit's in us to do. But you know, he's not in you so that you... Um, receive the spiritual rewards or the eternal rewards that come from uh, growing to spiritual maturity either. That's not the New Testament summary. There is maturity. There are rewards. It is through the Spirit, but that's not the story. Hopefully you remember in the Christian life of Paul, we looked, we looked in Acts and also in, in the study on mission, we looked in Acts and in Luke. Luke emphasizes when Jesus was commissioning the disciples Luke emphasizes the portion of the giving of the Holy Spirit, Luke 24 and Acts 1. Why, if you ask those passages where Jesus is setting up the disciples for the church age, why did God give us the Holy Spirit? What's, it, what, what's that gift for? Connect it to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, the spiritual gifts passage. What is that for? Look at it in Ephesians chapter 4 and spiritual gifts there. And I think you have a fairly clear picture that we're building up the body of Christ, which is composed of people that come out of the world and into a relationship with God through the gospel, through a process of evangelism and training called disciple-making. And that's what we're doing. That's our mission. And that's why we have the Holy Spirit. Did you know that it's, it's pretty explicit? If you look... I'll, I'm, I'm going to preach Galatians chapter 5, but I want to show you in Luke chapter 24, Jesus' last words as Luke presents them. The last words in Luke's presentation of the gospel. Um, there are lots of last word statements in the gospels. Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 21, 13 through 15, Acts chapter 1, especially in verse 8. But the way Luke writes it, he's talking to the disciples um, that he, he, worked, he spoke with them on the road to Emmaus. He says, in verse 48, you're witnesses of these things, of the gospel. 
Repentance for forgiveness of sins we proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem in the name of Jesus. So the gospel, your witnesses of these things, Luke 24, 48, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my father upon you, but you're to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. He tells them a mission. You're going to proclaim these things, and then he tells them the power to do it. You're going to receive power from my father. And it's pretty vague. He says, you're going to receive power from on high. That's the way Luke closes the gospel of Luke. And he opens Luke volume two, which is the book of Acts this way, but you'll receive power. This is Jesus to his disciples right before his ascension. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. The power of the spirit of God and the life of the disciples is so that they can bear witness for him where throughout the world, Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. What am I saying? I'm not saying that every one of us needs to go to seminary so that we can then be ordained to pastor. I'm not saying that. I'm saying every one of us has already received the Holy Spirit. We're being trained in the word. We're being matured in our spiritual gift and its expression. And every one of us has one according to Ephesians 4. And that is for the edifying of the body of Christ. And it's all part of this wonderful mission. But the power of the work is the spirit of God living in you. If you have Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And so this is the part of the riches of grace I want to emphasize. The spiritual life can be rejected. You can not, you have the potential of not walking according to your calling. I know that there are many who want it to be inevitable that you will succeed in the Christian life. But the New Testament is written in part because it's not inevitable. The commands of the New Testament, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, are written because it's not inevitable that you'll walk as you should. Every command is an opportunity for you to make a choice. And very often, back me up on this in your own life, look at yourself in the mirror of Scripture. We don't make the right choice very often, and we're believers. The apostle says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you've been sealed to the day of redemption in Ephesians 4. Do not quench the Holy Spirit of God in 1 Thessalonians 5. So God is sovereign and God is omnipotent, but you, by the God's sovereign design, you can say no to the works of the Spirit. And so you can't say no to redemption. If you've trusted in Christ, God redeems you. You can't say no to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you've trusted in Christ, you're in union with Christ by the Spirit of God. If you, if you, um, if you believe in Christ as your Savior, you have no, no choice but the coming resurrection and the resurrection body, which is an immortal and spiritual body that inherits eternity. You can't help it. I'm sorry. If, you're, if you've trusted in Christ, it's not an option about your resurrection to life and service to God for eternity for, in the new heavens and new earth. It's forever that we'll be worshiping and glorifying God and glorified bodies. But you do have a choice in this life to walk by the Spirit. You do have a choice about being filled by means of the Holy Spirit. I know it's true because God has used language to say so. Language is God's miracle, God's design. And it's powerful. Language does what God designed it to do. And the language of Scripture regarding the works of the Spirit in your life are imperatives. They're commands. A command is not a, I've done this, it's no, no chance for you not to do it, it's inevitable, you'll do it. A command is, here's what I want, do it, and now you have a choice to make. You can't choose whether you should do it, you can only choose whether you will or you will not. And make absolutely certain by God's sovereign, 
eternal decree, it is a choice that he's expecting you to make. In Galatians 5, the first chunk of Galatians 5, and our target really is verses uh, 25 and 26. In Galatians 5, 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Paul's talking to Christians who have the Holy Spirit in them. And if they don't walk in dependence on the Spirit, they will continue to be boastful and challenging and provoking and envying one another. There's a problem. There's a, a conduct problem among these carnal believers. And Galatians, like First and Second Corinthians, as you know, is a punitive, a corrective epistle. Generally, these believers who have the life and have the spirit and all that, they're walking in a wrong way. I love that 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 is your spiritual gifts like locus classicus of the New Testament, the, the place that talks about spiritual gifts the most is 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. And you know what it says? They're using them in a wrong way. It doesn't say that they're not using spiritual gifts, specifically glossolalia, tongue speaking, speaking of foreign languages. It's that they're using them in a wrong way and they need to be corrected for the inappropriate use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now think about that. This idea that sovereign God somehow can't work with our volition, that we're not making choices. Absolutely, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is written because they're using the gifts of the Spirit in the wrong way. You can see this happen all the time on Christian TV, on TBN and, and all those, the, the angel and all, that, all those channels. You can see people with gifts of communication saying wrong things, false teaching. Anytime somebody tells you that the Christian life is you experiencing prosperity now or you're not in fellowship with God is out of sync with the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles who died for their faith. Your best life now, it is not the Roman lictor's acts as the apostle Paul experienced for one example. But there's all kinds of false teachers on all kinds of false teachers on TV. And how can that be? How are they so powerfully gifted as teachers? They're, they're gifted. Many cases, Christians with a spiritual gift of communication, and they're using it in a wrong way, just like the Corinthians. What I'm trying to show you is that we're talking today about the potential that God has given you. You have an inevitable potential that the Spirit of God lives in you. He wants to, to, to work in you through his word so that you walk in a worthy manner, and you have to choose it. It's part of God's sovereign and eternal decree that we would have the responsibility placed on us to make these choices. Now, in terms of uh, the determinists and those that want to say, no, everything's hardwired in terms of God's eternal decree. When you try to bring the decisions God has made, like an election and predestination, down to the level of our daily choices, did God decree that I would take a left or a right here? Hmm. And you think you're in some sort of riddle or conundrum. You've misunderstood what we call the creator-creature distinction. His eternal decrees from eternity past are not at the level of the daily decisions we make. And that's the way to resolve it. There is no, no one ever, by the way, has resolved this, that God is uh, omniscient and he has decreed what he's decreed. That's, that's an, an infinite distance from us and God in terms of our decisions. He is sovereign and infinite and he has made his decisions, but he has sovereignly ordained that you are responsible to make yours. And the way you know to make your decisions is he's told you. 
Let me give you an example of how I think the scriptures, the commands of scripture work. It's very helpful to me. Some, some people, it's very common for people to say, if you emphasize the commands of God too much, then people think that you're in some sort of performative religion, that you, you're doing things, that you know, you're getting merit badges with God or something. While we're in the Klondike Boy Scout motif, we're, we're earning our merit badges. I'm getting my brownie points or whatever. Let me explain to you what I think this works. Okay, someone gives you a questionnaire, okay? And, um, and there's one question on it. And it's got a blank, a fill in the blank. And, and it's a question of a math, a math problem that you don't know the answer to. And they tell you, give me the 37th decimal of pi. And, it, it, and the 37th decimal of pi is blank, period. And they say, unfortunately for you, since you do not have the kind of calculator that gives you the 37th decimal of pi, you're probably about to die. But if you can answer it correctly, you'll live. Okay, here's how God's commands work. He tells you, do you might know the number? Let's say it's eight. The 37th decimal of pi is eight. God tells you write eight. And you live. He tells you to write eight. And he doesn't say, would you like to write eight? He doesn't say, maybe it would be a good idea, I don't know, if you wrote eight. He says, write an eight. And you write the eight and you live. That's the kind of thing that's going on with God's commands. Everything that God tells you that he wants you to do is for your glory and blessing under him because you receiving glory, according to, first, or according to John 17, enables you to glorify him. In other words, God is in the business of advancing and exalting and promoting his image bearers because the more we are exalted and promoted, the more we are glorifying to him. And it's, it's reciprocal. God is not a meanie holding back the goods from you, even though he said, don't do that. Do do that. These commands of scripture are God loving you. And that's, that's the way I understand relationship with God. God is, he's, don't touch that outlet. Do not lick the electrical outlet. Should we ask the children not to lick the electric, or should we tell them? Should we tell them kinetically, don't lick the, the electrical, all right? Kinetic, all right. In Galatians chapter 5, what we find is some commands of God, like be filled by the Spirit. Walk, I'm sorry, walk by the Spirit. Because God has the very highest and best for us. And he starts off in a summary of what he's done in verses 1 through 12, where he says circumcision essentially is not a part of the Christian spiritual life. Circumcision is a sign, the sign of God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. And the faith of the parents is indicated in the circumcision ritual of, uh, for Israel. And it was never rescinded. It's an eternal covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that misunderstanding is one of the reasons for writing the book of Galatians. Remember, the occasion is the Judaizers are saying, yes, Jesus plus circumcision, and so the Gentiles are lining up to be circumcised. And so Paul has some very harsh words for them, for the, the false teachers. For example, um, in verse 12, I wish those that, that are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. And literally, he says, cut themselves off. And he's saying, rather than uh, them getting you young men to go have surgery, you Gentile men getting your circumcision surgery, I wish they would do the whole thing to themselves. And it's 
pretty graphic. And you're like, that's not Sunday morning fair. But Paul is very terse because it's critical. He says also that if they receive this surgery, Christ is no benefit to them. Meaning that if you're adding a work to only faith in only Christ, then you have canceled, nullified faith in Christ by that work. And did I just say that if someone doesn't understand and they believe in Christ and they think they're doing works to please them, that they can't be saved? No, I'm saying that if you think your work saves you, if you're trusting in your work, then you haven't understood the gospel, that it's the work of Christ. And so your circumcision does you no good in terms of that eternal salvation. And so that's verses 1 through 12. But our target is the discussion in verse 1 that he picks back up in verse 13. In 1, he says it was for freedom that Christ set us free, therefore Keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. I started with the kids this morning about redemption. You've been freed. You've been freed from the slave market of sin. And you don't have to obey your sinful nature. You don't have to live within your sinful tendencies because you've been freed. Romans 6 is an extended exposition around verses 12 and 13. Explicitly, you don't have to obey the old nature. You don't have to walk according to the dictates of your sinful nature. You can indeed say no to this. But, but here's the other side of that coin in Romans 6 and here in Galatians. You can walk by the, spirit, by the flesh. You can say no to God and walk according to your sin nature. Can I paint a picture, a model of the Christian life for you? Can, you? can you get this real quick? This is so important. Christianity has been portrayed as how you feel. It's what that is. It's this romanticism gone into the modern and now the postmodern era. And the idea is that good things are easy and hard things are bad. So easy is a good feeling. Easy is chips and dip and a movie. Easy is just easy. And that's the good stuff. And if it's tough, if it's cognitive, if it's think it through, if it's got to make decisions, if it's I have to wait a little bit to learn something, to come to a conclusion and finally get somewhere, well, that's bad because it's hard. But the scriptures present something very vital for us that God has spoken to you in propositions, which means you've got to think. You can't feel the scriptures. You have to think them first. You can have feelings about them all day, but you've got to think through what they mean first. You've heard me say it. I've said it since 2007. If God wanted to give you feelings as the focus of your experience with him, he would have just given you a book of blister, a blister pack book of pills. Every page would be another pill or a set of pills. I'll take today's pill. Ooh, I might take three pills. Really feel good about the Lord. Can you OD on God's pills? No, no, you can't just, just, just eat pills. And, 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 that, and have a good feeling from the good, fe- the good, the good feeling pill, pills that God gave you. And that's worship, that's God, but that's not how he did it. He didn't reveal himself this way. He revealed himself in poems. And you have to analyze the poetry. He revealed himself in genealogical charts. He revealed himself in the book of Numbers, which largely is a muster roster for the nation. It's the, it's the roster for the nation's army that's about to go in and conquer uh, the, the Canaan and kick the Canaanites out. He revealed himself at, uh, in, in 1 Samuel 7 at the great battle between David and Goliath at Ephestamim. God revealed himself in narratives. He revealed himself in, um, in the prophetic scriptures, including the book of Revelation. God revealed himself in all these various literary ways, and they're all propositional. They're all saying something about God and something about us. And we have to get to that something and think it through. 
And this is what I believe based on that model, the fact that God is revealed propositionally in his word. I believe absolutely that the emotive side of you, the feeling, the, the Splunk known we read, um, uh, Colossians 3.12, um, is to have uh, bowels of compassion toward one another. Put on a heart of compassion in your, King, in your New American Standard. Bowels of compassion is better in King James. That emotional side of life that is part of your life, it's not your sin nature. Sin and emotion are tightly connected. You have many feelings you can have which are sinful. But it isn't the same thing, and so you can rejoice in the Lord. You can have godly sorrow. You can have these affective things. They're a follow-on from what God said. They're a product. Godly affections are a product of that thinking through what he said. And those of you who meditate on the word and think about it, ruminate on it, God works in your life, and you're, you're constantly motivated by God's grace to go talk to him. And, and I don't mean just nonstop where every second of your day you're praying. I mean, you're just going through life and you're talking to him as you go. And you're really relating to God. You know what I mean when I say there are wonderful blessings of joy that come from this meditation on these thoughts God has given us. But it's a thinking first, feeling second kind of thing the way God made you. And that's why these propositions, and I'm pretty emotional about that. In verses 13 through 15, after telling them that they don't need to get into this surgery business and that those that are troubling them need to mutilate themselves, in verse 13, you were called to freedom, brethren. You were called to freedom. Now, I feel like giving in to my sinful nature. My sin nature still exists. It's in me, and it, and it calls. It says, I, I think today we have an appetite for X, Y, or Z. I think we want to do this thing that we shouldn't do. We want to look at this thing that we shouldn't look at. I feel like this thing that I shouldn't feel like. You don't lead with how you feel. Your sin nature is calling to your feelings. I don't know. I'm not living that way. I'm going to take what God has said and think first and feel second. That's the, that's the model. In verse 13, you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. It's so interesting to me that this critical passage on the spiritual life focuses on the practical reality of one another. The word in Greek, it's one word, alelon. You have to use two words in English to translate it, one another. It's such a central topic. Four of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 are how the individual Israelite would relate to God. No other gods, no idols, no name in vain, the Sabbath. Those are how you would worship God with your choices. The other six are about how you treat other people for God's sake. See, how you treat other people has always been important to God. It's central to all the prophetic um, accusations God brings against the nation Israel through all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. They're always talking in part about how they're going for idols and they're, they're destructive to one another. When John, went, John Miles went through Jude with us, um, so much of, of his exposition was showing how the prophets are opposed constantly to this violence, to this problem of violence that's the, na- the natural result of, uh, of giving in to our sinful nature and, and reinforcing it. And the time you live in, beloved, it's so important to get this. We're radical here. And the time you live, we're being told with a naturalistic mindset that as animals, we have instincts and that's the natural course. 
And that's exactly the opposite of how we're told to think about life and training children, for example. Natural child development is these things that kids do and want to go get into. Hey, natural child development without God is old sin natural child development. And that is going to be cyberbullying. That is going to be um, the kinds of awful things that, that are in the headlines way too often. If you just want to see old sin nature driving the way we rear children and the culture, I'll call your attention to the children's program that they have every year called the Grammy Awards. I mentioned it first hour. It's just a, such a clear example. They are actually presenting the worship of Satan in a caricature of Satan with horns and stuff. But they're presenting a sexualized, orgiastic worship fest towards Satan on prime time for children because it's the music that the children are buying. The Grammys are all, that, all, that whole culture from Elvis on is all about the kids. And that's, that's the natural course. It's just to drive as far as you can toward the wickedest thing you can find. Well, there's nothing worse than Satan. And now, ABC on Twitter, we're ready to worship. That's where we are as a culture. But it's not real different. It's just more obvious. It's not, it's not so new. What I'm proposing is that the Christian life is radical. It's, it's a thought before a feeling, and the feelings have to follow. So these propositions, he says, you don't have to give in to the flesh. It's a practical thing in how you treat one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Remember the one another? Six of the Ten Commandments. Jesus summarized the law, love the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6.5. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. That's the whole law. Four commandments are God, uh, you and God. Six of the Ten Commandments are how you relate to others for God's sake. This is central to our worship. The Apostle John will say that if you uh, say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're lying. How can you hate your brother whom you have seen when you ha- uh, and say you love God whom you haven't seen? And it's a complicated reasoning John provides in 1 John. But the point is that loving God is obeying him. The way you show your love is you obey him. He told you to love your brother. So if you hate your brother, you have definitely not. You do de- definitely do not love God. It's the Christian life. It's radical. I'm telling you. It's, of course, if somebody treats you or mistreats you in a bad way, or in a way you won't like, of course, your reaction is going to be to despise them or to not like them, or at least to just say, Let, let's separate and let that be. And what Paul's proposing here is that that's not the life. Benign disregard for people and saying, well, I have no sin against you and go and go be clothed, be fed. That's not Christian love, a benign disregard for people. That's not Christian love. I'll say it again. It's not Christian love. Now, Christian love is not just affection either. It is affection when affection is appropriate. Christian love is providing and desiring the thing that God wants for the other person as far as it depends on you. And that's always prayer. The practical side of Christian sanctification here is how you treat one another. And the whole law is fulfilled and love your neighbor as yourself, which is a lower standard, Paul's about to say, than we live under. We're not under the law. We're above the law. There's no, there's no commandment against. There's no law against what we're commanded to live. And verse 15, and now the practical reality of the Galatian church. If you buy and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. 
a lay loan, a lay loan, one another, one another, all through this passage of the Christian spiritual life. So we're, we're being put into the practical reality of it as he teaches through what the Christian life is about. He's telling you the context in which you're going to live it. So, okay, I got it, Pastor. We have the Holy Spirit in us, and we are commanded not to be indwelt. That's always true, but to be filled by him. Okay, okay, I'm commanded to be filled by the Spirit, and that's parallel in Colossians 3 to the Word of Christ richly dwelling with me, so, within me. So, so time in the Word and the power of God is, is equipping me to be putting on the character of Christ, and I'm walking in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the spiritual life. Got it. I've got it. The mechanics, it's God's power in me, but it's my choices. He's equipping me to make them, and it's, a, it's this walk that I have with him walking by the Spirit. Okay, I understand. I understand. I've got me in the Holy Spirit, and I'm according to the Word, and I'm trusting in God as every step. And Okay, now let's put other people in the room, because there is no walk by the Spirit in the Scriptures without how you're treating other people. I didn't say that other people are between you and God. I said your walk with God directly impacts what you do and say with other people. And now we have the basis for the household of the faith. In the flesh, the family gathering is very often a nightmare. We get no end of entertainment from various portrayals of brokenness among family members and various gatherings. The Thanksgiving feast that, oh, I just can't sit by so-and-so because they're going to talk about, and, and, and it becomes this ordeal. There are three people maybe at the gathering or 30 people that you want to visit with. There's two people that you absolutely hope you never have to talk to at all, and the rest you just pray that you just get through the rest of the day with no conflicts. And that's the flesh. And at least there's football and, and hopefully some sort of uh, social lubricant. We can, we can numb the pain a little bit with some sort of um, chemicals. That's how, that's, how, that's how we deal with one another after the flesh. But after the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, it's not supposed to be like that because we're walking with God, we're putting on Christ, and you have Christ in you. And the Spirit of God has made your body the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I value that even if you don't. And I'm thinking of God first and you in that context. And that's the way. It's a supernatural, radical life. But that's why you should have people around you in this, this household that you can trust. That's why you should be able to tell somebody, hey, I need to talk to somebody about something. And they should be able to hold it and not run their mouth about it. Because they're not walking after the flesh. They're walking by the Spirit. That's why you should have uh, an ability to say, uh, you know, that hurt my feelings and talk to someone. What just happened bothers me, and I, I don't like that. And you ought to be able to tell me that, and I ought to be able to tell you that, and it not be like, well, now the relationship's broken because there's been a negative experience. No. Love covers a multitude of sins. We should have security in that expectation with one another because we have the Holy Spirit. It's so amazing how fragile we think God the Holy Spirit is working in us. We have to walk on eggshells because we might break. The, no, no. This thing should be stainless steel reinforced you know, really powerful and able to take a lot of strain. And, and I fear, beloved, that the strain is coming. And it's not from within, it's external. We are in a beautiful bubble of peace and freedom right now. And we better be, we better be getting our cal consciences calibrated to how this is going to work. Because the Acts 2 kind of life where we're helping one another and we're sharing in common, that may be on, on our horizon more than we, more than we think. But I'm not a prophet. I'm 
communicating the prophetic word of God. And so let's go to verse 16. In verse 16 through 24, you have victory between you and God over your flesh. And that means that if you have victory over your flesh and you're not giving in to your fleshly desires and you have victory over your flesh and you're not giving in to your revenge motivation and your self-righteousness and all the arrogance that tends to, to make us think we're right when we're not, if we're having victory in our spiritual lives over our flesh and the power of the spirit, then we can work and, and get along with one another because in the fruit of the spirit, there's peace. Because there's the joy of our, of our so great salvation because we're living together in this God-made harmony. But it's a choice that you have to make. And as much as it depends on you, Paul says, live at peace with all men. In verse 16 through 24, we have the Roseland motto for, the, for our boys. Our, our boys are supposed to know that if I say, but I say, they're supposed to say back to me, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5.16. I will exposit that just a little bit. I'll bring out, tease out a little bit of the Greek from that, that it's a very interesting and strange construction, he says in Greek, that they've cleaned up for your English Bible. But I say walk by the Spirit, and it will be impossible for you to carry out the lust of the flesh is a better way to translate that in English. Because he double negatives, which strengthens the negative, and then he negates the subjunctive mood, which is the mood of possibility. So it's the impossible. You cannot be fulfilling arrogance, self-righteousness, bitterness, pettiness, all the character, gossip, judging, maligning, fornication, lifestyle fornication. You cannot walk after the flesh and be filled by the spirit. It, they're mutually exclusive states of your experience. And so if you're walking in sin and a sinful pattern, you, you cannot be experiencing the walk by the Spirit and vice versa. If I'm walking by the Spirit, I cannot react in a sinful, angry response. Be angry and sin not in Galatians or Ephesians 4. But I can't sinfully react in anger here out of some self-righteous you know, sense of evil indignation or something. It's impossible. And so the two states... And then he elaborates on the two states. For the flesh, that's your sin nature, sets its desire against the spirit. And the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit in you, sets his desire against the flesh. For these are in opposition one to another so that the t you may not do the things that you please. This is not the good wolf and the bad wolf. That's not true. That's paganism. This is you have a sinful tendency in you that's part of this mortal flesh that's dying. And you have the spirit of God who lives in you that's made your mortal flesh the temple of the Holy Spirit. And who is expressing is the question. Is the spirit of God expressing himself through you or is your sinful nature? And here's the thing. I felt like every disobedience that I ever committed, I felt, or it was even motivated. That's why they called it emotion. I felt like lying. I felt like saying that a thing I shouldn't have said. I felt like disobedience. Hey, don't push that button. I felt like it. And that feeling when you, when you had, we all know it. Hopefully you're very aware of this, that you have a feeling toward personal sin that is kind of behind the choice to do it. And that very moment of that connection between, I kind of felt like disobedience. I felt like thinking more highly of myself than I think. I felt like the self-righteousness. I felt like gossiping. That is the call, that lust of the flesh, that we're being equipped by God's word through what he said in the power of his spirit to say no. And that's where victory lives. 
These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And this is an interesting wrinkle he's added. The law, he told us earlier in Galatians, kills us. The law shows us that we're out of bounds. It's a fence. And when God put the fence up, we found we were standing 10 miles from base. We're way out. The fence boundary's back there, and we're far exceeding it. That's what the law shows you. And the law kills you, and and this is the idea that he's already developed from the law. It shows you your need for a Savior. And so, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The law doesn't condemn you because the Spirit of God is walking you through righteousness and peace and joy. If we walk in the light as God himself is in the light in 1 John 1, as Mike prayed earlier. 1 John 1, if we walk in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. That's that's the nature of the spiritual life. So walking according to the flesh is not. And that's why he says, so that you may not do the things that you please. That's that urge. It pleases me in this moment to disobey God. But if I'm going to walk by the spirit, I can't. And that's why Paul will say, say elsewhere, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood against sin. I'm sorry. It's not my fault. I don't apologize, but I am sorry to say for you and for me that we are going to suffer in this life, whether other people involve themselves with us or not. And we're going to suffer because we're sinners. We are the enemy. We're sinful by nature. We have this sinning nature in us. And it has not been eradicated. It wasn't eradicated for the Galatians. It's not eradicated in you. And the more we think that it is, the more we demonstrate our self-righteousness and that form of arrogance. We have a problem. And it's not going away until this body is made new or you're absent from it. It hurts. Paul describes it as resisting the point of shedding blood. It's a a challenge, and I'm sorry that it hurts. This is why we have to approach each other with compassion. It's why we have to be long-suffering, because we're under pressure from within, before without ever calls. I didn't have to turn on the Grammys to have evil, satanic thoughts. Grammys will help you along with that. Introduce you to things you might never have thought of before, and you go down that road now. A lot of the sins that are being promoted today as the new morality are sins that if you try them, you're given over. Romans 1 describes the sexual sins, the homosexual tendencies. This is something that you never try because it's a trap. You can be given over to this, and you weren't oriented that way or not not in a hard, challenging way, but all of a sudden it becomes this compulsion, almost like an addiction. That's the way Romans 1 describes, for example, same-sex attraction. It's a, it's a hard thing. So think about the various ways people are tempted by their sinful tendencies. Everybody's got their, 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 their orientations and their sinful nature. Some people are oriented into a heterosexual uh, a tendency that is disordered and sinful. We call these men. Books are written, Every Man's Struggle. We're, of course, this is an area of life that gets easily co-opted by our sinful lust. And sex isn't sin, until it's not between a husband and wife. And then in any other case, it's sin. Absolutely, without any question. And if you're walking in a fornication lifestyle, you are not walking by the Spirit. And you're not, well, we just did, but now, you know, now I've confessed it, now I'm back. No, you have to stop the lifestyle. You have to get out of the entire rebellion that your life is. 
Because sex is between a husband and wife. Any other way, it's rebellion and, and, and really, Paul says, giving the devil an opportunity. But I'm just saying everybody has a struggle against their flesh. Everybody's struggling with the sin nature. And I'm sorry because it hurts. But the truth is that the power of my sinful urges is nothing compared to the infinite, omnipotent power of God who lives in you. You have the Spirit of God. This is the riches of grace. And therefore, you can be victorious. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality. These these are sexual sins. Immorality, impurity, sensuality. Those are all different ways of describing disordered sexual uh, sin, which could Jesus taught us in Matthew 5 could be in, in your thinking. Thinking about this and desiring it in your thoughts is sinful just as physically doing the thing that you're thinking of. Remember, God doesn't say no, don't lick the outlet because he's keeping you back from that delicious 120 in the wall. And if only he knew it tastes like chocolate and you want to go taste that delicious electricity. He says don't lick the outlet because he loves you and it's not good for you even though you think it might be. And that's how we are with sexual sin. Our body's telling us we, we have consent with the other person. Their, their body's telling them. And, it, and of course, yes, pressure, appetite. If I'm hungry, I eat. That's what the Corinthians said. Food is for the stomach. The stomach's for food. You know, you have urges. You got to fulfill them. But there's a right way to fulfill God-given urges, and it's in marriage in terms of sex. And it's, I believe, and while we're here, I am not the kind of person that thinks that if we say sin, we mean sex. If we say sin, we mean fornication or something. I don't believe that way. But I do believe this, based on the evidence of Scripture, beginning in Genesis 3, confirmed in Genesis 6, and everything Paul says about it, I think Satan's primary avenue to attack us is in this appetite. Because it's, it's a very strange part of our life. Two people, blessing of marriage, all the, all the complexity involved there, the way it works, it's an appetite just like food, like hunger. There's so many things about it, and it's such a great blessing of God's design in marriage. And, and again, if you do the word study in the New Testament, do a concordant search on Satan. First Corinthians, do not give the devil an opportunity. We have duties in marriage in this way, because if you don't do your duty toward the other person, then that does provide an avenue for the enemy. But greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. And I love you, and I want you to enjoy the blessings that God has for you in this life and not forfeit any, especially fellowship with him through sexual sin and its consequences. These of the flesh in verse 20 are idolatry, sorcery. That's pharmakeia. Uh, the sorcery he's talking about there would be the sorcery, um, the, the magic practice through uh, drug intoxication, which was very common in the ancient world, the oracles of Delphi and the others. Enmity, strife. These are called the Baptist sins or the church, the church sins. Enmities and strife. You know, we're eventually, the building team's going to have a report for you. We're going to have a project. And we're going to say, here's what we're going to do. And there will probably be drapes. And you know what I mean, right? People are going to leave this church over what color are the drapes. 
Not at all. Not this church. This church sits in 27 degree uh, temperatures with no heat. Right? We're not, we're not going to cave on these silly things. I know of a church where they, they did this really nice uh, fellowship space and the floor was a checkerboard pattern. Oh, no. I think they lost people over the checkerboard floor. And some of you are like, well, some people got to go. Um, <laughs> but not me, not, not, not us, right? The church sins are enmity, strife, jealousies, and then the, 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 you know, the pastor sins when he goes home, outbursts of anger. I mean, it's, I know it's not just me. Uh, we all have to deal with this problem. And the, more, the thing about anger, the more you give into it, the easier it becomes. And, um, and be angry, Paul says, yet sin not. There are things that bother you, but you don't have to get sinful about it, is the point. Disputes, dissensions, factions, oh, that's all good church stuff. That's church splits right there. Envying, and now we're not Baptists anymore, drunkenness. Carousing, that's overeating. Carousing doesn't mean that you just run around with, with wild women. It, it actually probably means the same as drunkenness, but with food. So that rotund pastor, and I try not to be one of those, I try not to, to go, you know, but that, that heavy guy that talks about drinking, and, and all he can talk about is the sin of alcohol. And you're like, you've got the sin of cheesecake or whatever. You know, and like, cheesecake's good, but a little bit, right? And I, I know, I gotta, we, gotta, we all have to work on it. But um, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, he's just making a list of sins, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. See, that this is the works of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh are obvious. But the fruit of the Spirit is counterintuitive and it's radical. It's, the, it's love. It's joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's peace. We need it. Especially since we're hurting under the strain of our sin nature. We need peace. We're told that if we bring our requests to God with thanksgiving... In Philippians 4, 7, that the peace of God will surround us, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ. And I put those passages together, this and that. Peace, patience, that's long-suffering, that's, that's a long fuse. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That word self-control doesn't mean that you're ecstatically out of control of yourself. The internet is full of videos of misguided people being led by wolves in, sheep's, in, in pastor's clothing that are dancing around and out of their minds in ecstatics. But they could just as easily be with our, for our ancestors and, and the Celts or the other pagan religions that, from Europe where they're in ecstatic states dancing around fires with paint all over themselves, hooting and hollering in, 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 a, in a trance of ecstasy. And there's no God in that. The fruit of the Spirit is not being out of control of yourself. It is self-control. Because, see, the Holy Spirit isn't, the way the Spirit works in us is not like you've got this foreign entity and you leave and you're multiple personality or something. I'm not, it's, I'm not expressing myself and now the Holy Spirit's there. It's that it's you empowered by the Spirit. Where he stops and you start is not discernible. Your spirit is infused or indwelt by God the Holy Spirit and it's you empowered by the Spirit. Self-control. 
how badly, how desperately we need it. And against these things, there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus are crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And that's true for the Galatians, and that's true for you. If you've trusted in Christ, that's your position. And it's all the stuff we've been talking about in the riches of grace. You've crucified the flesh. Well, if I've crucified it, if it's been hung on the cross, if it's dead to me, then why is it still giving me pressure in this passage? Why are the Galatians still sinful? Why do I still feel like doing things God said not to do? Because the death we're talking about is not whether it's active or present, it's whether it has authority. It's the power that it had over you. And that's the argument in Romans 6 and 7. It's the argument here. You don't have to obey it. And so in verses 25 and 26, if we are living by the Spirit, if we are living by the Spirit, and the the implication is we are, then to the Spirit, let us stoikeo. Either follow or be, confirm, or, or be conformed. Let us conform. What's really great about this is that Paul is saying it in a way that includes himself. We need to be conformed to the Spirit. We need to walk by the Spirit. If we are living by the Spirit, notice I've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I have the new life. Then let's walk in this life by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerated you. You have the life, but are you living it? That's the challenge. It's the phase one, phase two stuff. And the Galatians, by their behavior, are not. They're biting and devouring one another. Let us not become boastful, one another provoking, one another envying. See, the one another stuff is central to how you would practice this walk by the Spirit. And that's your measure. Do you have a Christian life? Then how are you doing with others? And by the way, I know people that are just go along, get along people. They're not walking by the Spirit. They just, they're agreeable. Their sin tendencies are in other directions. They're not, <laughs> they're not instigators. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the Spirit is producing that peaceableness. But, but here's what we should see. If I'm walking by the Spirit, I'm not, it's not about me. That word boastful, kenodoxi, dox, uh, kenodoxoi, that word is empty plus glory. Where you get the word vainglory, the kenosis, doxis, doxology, glory. It's just a waste for us to brag. It's a waste for us to think highly of ourselves. Really, you don't have any time or energy. There's not enough time in your life to exalt self. I don't care how much you polish it. You're still just you. But Jesus is Jesus. Now that, that's somebody that we should exalt. That's someone we should point to. And that's a constant repentance we all probably have to do, or some of us more than others, but we need this. It's not about me. But I feel, that's right there, it's about you. But I want to do X. But God said no. I want to, eat, I want to eat, uh, eat electricity. I want to go play in the pretty yellow lines. God keeps saying no. And, if, and if, if he needs to, sometimes he tackles you, high tackles you away from the traffic so that you're, you live and it hurts. Let us not become boastful, one another provoking or envying. What's the challenge here? That you have the Holy Spirit, but why would you waste that gift and not walk by the Spirit? What's the spiritual life that's yours? It's your choice. How would you live it? You take account to what God has said and talk to him about it. And when you're challenged, we don't understand, tell him. Part of your spiritual life, ask him, help me, help me know, help me understand. 
I know there have got to be at least a dozen of you, maybe more, who could testify. If I asked you and you thought about it, you could say, yeah, many times this happened to me where I didn't understand something, I prayed about it, and it wasn't long before somebody with a Bible open gave me the answer. For me, it was almost like math. Like I had a question, I would listen to my Bible tape, I would get an answer. It was almost like, like clockwork for me growing up. It happens to me all the time. That's part of your life. I don't understand God. Help me know. Help me understand. But this is the spiritual life, and it is not in personal sin. It is in rejection of personal sin, walking by the Spirit. Father, we thank you that we're not the church of Galatia, the churches in Galatia, which were characterized by, um, by a rank sinfulness beginning with the denial of the gospel of grace. We thank you that you've given us the wisdom, the insight to insist with the Apostle Paul on the gospel of grace. Father, this error in Galatia wasn't just in their doctrine, though. It had extended to how they treated one another, and these go hand in hand. Rejection of your grace meant they weren't gracious. Father, let us be gracious people that are truly walking by your Spirit, truly living out what you've said because we're trusting you, because your Spirit's working in us. Don't let us give lip service to these things. Don't let us say an amen and then walk away and forget what kind of person the Scriptures say we are. We're responsible persons who have your word, And we're supposed to think it first and feel second. Father, let us, as we live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. And those that don't know Christ in the hearing of my voice, Father, we pray for their souls. Every one of us together right now, we're asking on behalf of those who don't know Jesus Christ in our lives, that you would bring someone to give them the words, that you would make the words real to them, that you would help them understand. Father, there are so many different things that have to align for them to understand these things. Your spirit has to do this work of conviction. Father, give us wisdom to know when to speak and when not to speak. But however you do it, save them, bring them the truth, and help them understand it. We pray in Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen. amen.